our gracious and loving Heavenly Father. Lord, music is at the heart of the great controversy, and we pray that you will illuminate our minds as we compare and contrast these two different worship services. Help us to see that the worship forms are not just cosmetic, are not just incidental, but they are connected to things that are foundational. And so, Father, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit now. And Lord, we pray also that you might not only inform our minds, but that you may change our hearts and our practices. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These are some questions that we're going to consider as we go through this part of the seminar. Is music morally neutral? Are we free to use any style or form of worship, music, in order to give praise to God as long as the heart is sincere? Now, that's a very important quality, but will that alone work? What about the role of culture? Did Luther use bar and dance tunes to proclaim the gospel? What about the drum set? We're going to refer to that in the next, uh, not in the next session, tomorrow's session. And what about dancing? That will be also tomorrow's session. Is music morally neutral? How are we going to answer this? We're going to explore the connection between the forms of worship and theology and philosophy. We're going to look also, which we will not get a chance to do in this session, but in another session, about the psychophysiological effects of music. We're basically rhythmic beings, and so how does this really impact us on a psychophysiological level? And we're going to take a look at the language of music. Um, just to make it a little more practical and tangible, to me music is, is a lot like a house. And um, I don't, well, I do own my house, but the bank owns most of it. But uh, when I was uh, about to buy the house, everyone was telling me uh, that the most important part of the house is what? Yes, the, the foundation. I mean, you could have everything else looking great, but if there's real problems there, then uh, you've, got, you've got some serious issues with your house. So, Jesus said the wise man built his house upon the rock, and we call it the foundation. Well, if you were to drive by and look at some areas and some properties, um, what would be the most visible part of any house? I can tell you what it wouldn't be, and that's what's up on the screen. It's not the foundation. So, uh, in order to check the foundation, you can't just check it driving by a certain community. You have to get out of the car and do some real exploring. And you should never conclude that the foundation doesn't exist because you can't see it. Um, we should never evaluate a house without considering the importance of a rock-solid foundation. Now, what's the most visible part of music? Well, I guess I got it up on the screen. I didn't give you a chance. But when you hear it, this is what you're hearing. You're hearing rhythm, melody, and harmony. That's, that's what you hear. Um, that's what... If you were taking a drive by the community without seriously evaluating it, that's what you hear. That's what comes out at you when you're just easy listening. And you can compare this to the roof, the bricks, the siding, the windows. But uh, what then does the, the foundation of our musical house represent? Well, it's not rhythm, melody, and harmony. That's not the, the foundation of your musical house. It's really ideas about God, who He is, and how He acts. That will all be expressed in the worship service. Okay? It's value systems and beliefs. The sociology of music said this. They said musical style, philosophy, and theology are interrelated. 
Just like when God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, we are totally integrated, mental, spiritual, uh, physical, uh, social. We are all integrated that way. And so is musical style, philosophy, and theology. Now listen to this uh, uh, incredible statement. It's found in the book, The Great Controversy, and I'll give you the reference in just a minute. It integrates everything that I've just been trying to say. It says, it is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the great controversy. His sophistry lessens the obligation of the divine law and gives man license to sin. Now notice this here. At the same time, he causes them to cherish what? False conceptions of God. Starting point. So that they regard him with fear and hate rather than with love. The cruelty inherent in his own character is attributed to the Creator. Now listen to this. It. It is a reference to the cruelty inherent in his own uh, character and everything that we've just talked about up here. But most, anyway, here. It is embodied in systems of religion and what? Expressed in modes of worship. Do you see the connection? This doesn't come out of a vacuum, okay? Like the illustration I shared, you know, God created, you know, seeds. Oh, I forgot to create the land. No. This always assumes this or this. It always assumes something about God or false conceptions of God. Modes of worship mean different styles of worship. So all these things are expressed in modes of worship. The point here is, it's integrated. If you move this block, it's going to have a corresponding effect on the rest of the structure. That's, and that's the point. I call it the anatomy of worship in music. Uh, here, just like building a house on the bottom, you have our understanding of God. Then you have His actions. And then you have how He was to be worshipped. And ethics and lifestyle, this is all one integrated package right here. You cannot say that changing this or this will not have any effects on this, and vice versa. They're all interrelated. For instance, we have a call to worship as Seventh-day Adventists in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. It says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Now, in the last days, it's either worship the beast or worship the Creator. The point is, everyone's going to be worshiping. Your, your, your worship structure will either be based on what Jesus is doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary, or it will be based on the Roman Catholic evangelical Greek philosophical structure that we have talked about earlier. But it will be based on one of those two. There's no question about it. So, um, fear God, our concepts of God. The hour of His judgment has come. Now, how many believe um, that Jesus has been in the most holy place since 1844 doing a work of investigative judgment other than Seventh-day Adventists? You know anybody else that believes that? You have Seventh-day Baptists, but they don't believe that. You have others that keep the Sabbath, but they don't believe that. My point here is, this is part of the plan of salvation. Salvation, you know, you can't lift the cross high enough, amen? 
I mean, you can't lift what you can't lift that up high enough. But if your theological understanding of the cross is separated from the Day of Atonement, then you have a distorted picture of what happened at the cross. So, the investigative judgment is just as much a part of the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. That's almost a paraphrase from the great controversy. It's kind of like saying, you know, we always want to pit one thing against another. Well, I mean, which is more important in the formula H2O, the hydrogen or the oxygen? You just don't have it if you don't have it all. That's it. So, um, if you change the plan of salvation, guess what? You are changing how you express that in your worship service. So, our unique understanding of the plan of salvation must be expressed. And as I said earlier in a, in a, previous, uh, in a previous session, uh, one of the pastors that started the, uh, one of the celebration churches, um, not too far from here, um, said that he had a lot of problems with this. Well, it's no big mystery then. What is your worship service going to be like if you have problems with the investigative judgment? It's going to be a celebration of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's it. Stay at Mount Sinai. Give glory to Him. We ought to, we ought to glorify Him in everything we do. All right, let's connect music and theology. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. This is the famous chapter on the golden calf incident. Now, God sent ten devastating plagues on the nation of Egypt. It was really a judgment on their gods. He rendered them powerless and brought his people through the Red Sea. And they were encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, what I want to do first is describe the worship service. And then I want to backtrack to uncover the theological uh, framework that the worship service was built on. All right? Because that's what we've been discovering. This is all an integrated package. And so look at uh, uh, Exodus chapter 13, verses... Um, 32. I'm sorry, yeah, 32, thank you. Exodus 32, uh, verses, uh, let's see, um, verse 17 and 18. Exodus 32, verses 17 and 18. Um, says, And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of what? War. War in the camp. Okay, so he doesn't exactly see what's going on, but he's evaluating based on what he's hearing, and he says, There's a noise of war in the camp. And, uh, and in verse 18, Moses said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, like for victory, nor is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. He says, my son, Joshua, you don't quite have it right. But it says, it's the noise of them that sing, do I hear. See, Moses was raised in the court of the Pharaoh. And he, heard, and he knew this style of music when he heard it. Joshua, perhaps, in a nice, sheltered Seventh-day Adventist home, didn't realize that. He said, man, there's a noise of war. I never heard anything like that. It's got to be war. <laughs> Can't be music. But that's exactly what Moses said. No, it's the sound of them that sing, do I hear. Now, just from that text, you can draw certain implications about the style of music. War is not soft. It's loud. It doesn't proceed in a harmonious fashion. It's, it's chaotic. 
It shocks the senses. I was just talking with Elder Louis Torres, and he showed me an article about how, uh, this is not what was stated in the article, but uh, more and more the military is using some real extreme forms of rock music in order to, dry, in order to break down the resistance of people. Like Noriega, uh, not too many years ago. I mean, they couldn't take that pounding and pounding day in, day out. That was it. It drove them absolutely bananas. So it was loud. It was chaotic. Verse 25, same chapter. Now in the King James it says, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, if you have an NAS or an NIV, it simply means out of control. So the barriers of restraint had been broken down. There was no longer anything, no longer, uh, they were no longer held back. They were free to express themselves in whatever way they wanted. And so they were out of control. It says, for Aaron had made them that way unto the shame among their enemies. And some versions actually say they became a laughing stock among their enemies. And then in verse 19, of course, uh, it came to pass as soon as he came near unto the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and broke them beneath the mount. In other words, symbolically stating that every principle of the Ten Commandments had been broken by this worship service. And so you have the dancing. Now, what, you think that's square dancing that they were doing? You know, swing your partner around and around? Absolutely not. If, it's, if, it's, if the decibel level is loud, and if it's chaotic, and if the people are out of control, you can imagine what is happening. Verse 6 actually is another very good indicator. It says, And the people rose up early on the morrow, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Okay, this was an entertaining worship service. This was a worship service that ministered to the lusts of the flesh. That word play is the same word that, is, that was used when Isaac told Abimelech, about Rebecca and said, well, she's really not my wife. And I don't know what Abimelech was doing, whether he was some peeping Tom or something. But all of a sudden he looked out and he saw Isaac with his wife, well, with, his, with Rebecca, doing things that were reserved only between a, a husband and a wife. And he said, wait a minute now. No, no, you can't be. <laughs> you cannot be brother and sister because they don't interact that way. So in other words, the word play then could be very sensual then. The word play was also used in, in the judges. You remember when Samson was finally chained up. And the Philistines said, bring Samson out that we may make sport with him. Same word as the word play in Exodus 32 verse 6. So why did they want Samson out? Hey, they wanted to be entertained. So this was an entertaining form of worship. This was a worship that, that, uh, that uh, ministered to the lusts of the flesh. This was a form of worship where when things happened, it broke down the, uh, the walls of self-control. They were completely eradicated. Now, what we want to do, as we have been discovering, these worship forms don't come without a certain theological foundation. And if you search in this story, it is there. All right? Now, verse 1. Theological foundations. And I'm going to read up to verse 5 again, and then we're going to backtrack and talk a little bit more about the relationship between those theological foundations and 
the worship service. Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Notice this, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 4, we're just going to skip a little bit. And Aaron makes an appeal, and the people give him all the jewelry, and he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. They rose up early, they sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Back to verse 1 for a minute. Now, there is a fundamental change in the concept of God in verse 1. Did you catch that? It said, up, make us gods, which will go before us. The plan was to bring them all the way to the promised land, but their visible leader was gone. Moses was gone. And so they needed something. They said, make us a god. Now, they violated certain principles in order to do that. If you check the context in Exodus 31, the last eight verses talk about the Sabbath. Very interesting. In verse 17, it talks about the Sabbath. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And then in the next verse, it talks about God giving Moses the two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. It's interesting to me that the Sabbath preceded this incident on the golden calf. And why? What is the Sabbath made out of? Is it made out of any material object? Huh? It's made out of time. Why? Why time? Ever thought about what time is? Is it a thing? You got to grasp it. The Sabbath would remind us. You see, if he, God had made things, if He had made uh, um, the, uh, the Sabbath out of any material object, what would immediately happen to our concept of Him? Lowered, right? And we'd eventually get to the point where we'd no longer see a distinction between the Creator and the creation. Once that distinction is gone, you still have to be religious, so where are you going to get your concept of God from? You're going to get it from nature. And that's exactly what began to happen. So, the Sabbath reminds us that there is forever a distinction between the Creator and the creation, and the two should never be confused. Never ever be confused. God is not in everything. He is transcendent to the creation. He walks with us, he talks with us, but he's not ontologically in us. It's his word that needs to be in us. It's his principles that need to be in us. But his divine stuff is not in us. And we should not confuse God with the creation in that way. So, you have to violate the Sabbath. Once the Sabbath is gone, that's it. God and creation are now confused. So now you need a concept of God. And they said, up, make us gods. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, it says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Make it all according to the pattern. The proper interpretation of the nature of God comes from 
the sanctuary, the Sabbath, the great controversy theme. Once that is ditched, you're, you're, almost, you're almost at pantheism. You're almost at pantheism. Not too long before you get there. All right? So, they discarded the sanctuary. They discarded the Sabbath. This was their philosophical foundation in verse 1. Make us gods, which will go before us. When that shift began to take place, notice what happened in verse 4. It says, These be thy gods, in the middle of the verse, O, uh, o Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Does that remind you of something? Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So when it says, These be thy gods, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, it's like, wait a minute, now there's confusion about how God works and saves. Now, it says, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. But in the next verse, it says, Tomorrow is a feast to the calves. Is that what it said? No, it says, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Because who wants to admit that they're worshiping idols? No, we worship the Lord our God. We only do it through the calves. It's the calves that help us understand who He is. We want to see Him and feel Him and touch Him. And that was expressed in their worship service, no doubt about that. So the holiness aspect is totally gone. Once the sanctuary and the Sabbath go, and by the way, Leviticus chapter 16, the word holy is mentioned about nine times in that chapter. That's the chapter on the Day of Atonement. And the Sabbath is a holy day as well. Once those go, then that's it. That's it. We can go the downward stretch. But it's interesting to me in this chapter how the Lord lays it out one step at a time. He didn't begin just by talking about their worship service and leave it there. No. He wants us to see the whole integrated package. Once they laid down, make us gods, the next step was confusion about salvation. The next step was their worship service. And then the final step, you know what it was? In verse 7, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. The end result was corruption. That was the end result of changing these forms of worship. And God said, you know what, Moses, they're not my people. You brought them up. So, I mean, it was the, he dis, it's like he disowned them. Because my people don't act that way. So we need to view this as a, as a package deal. So you have, in Exodus 32, you have a false view of God, confused with the creation. Make us gods. Where did they get this idea from? Well, from the things that were made. You have a false view of salvation. You have a false worship service. You have the music which is loud and appeals to the lusts of the flesh. That's right in the passage. Because when it happened, the people were out of control. They were dancing. They were out of control. They, uh, let's see, it was the noise of them that sing. We covered that. The end result was corruption. Now, can you think of a music that is loud, that appeals to the lusts of the flesh, that is corrupting? It's not that hard to figure out. That ministers to the lusts of the flesh? Sure, there's a saying in the music industry. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. 
I mean, they make no mistake about it. They know entirely what it's about. The, the, I'm talking about the performers now, the musicians themselves. And I'm picking on rock because it's really universal, and we'll get into that. But if you have a music that is loud and appeals to the lusts of the flesh, my question now is, what foundation have you built on? What foundation have you built on? Again, nobody lays a six-inch foundation and builds a skyscraper on it. You cannot say there's no connection between the foundation and the structure. Every builder knows that that isn't true. Neither do you set up a 250-foot foundation and put a 10 by 10 pole barn on it. Whatever you lay down is what you end up building upon. However, what you do in your worship service expresses what you really believe about God. And that belief may clash with the one you have in your mind. But this is the reality of it all. So just tinkering in this area down here about the worship service and thinking that our theological structure will remain intact is really naive. Because the Bible says here that it really isn't so. Let's summarize it here. Again, this is the foundation up. Make us gods to go before us. These be thy gods that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. You know, tomorrow's a feast to the Lord. Moses talked about this is the noise of them that sing and the dancing. The end result, thy people have corrupted themselves. So that's the integrated package deal. Now this is what the devil ultimately wants right up here. But he knows most of us are too smart for that. And so he tinkers down here because, hey, that's for the pastors and the theologians. None of us are supposed to understand that stuff. And so he tinkers down here, or he tinkers here and says, hey, it really doesn't matter. But when it's integrated, that's exactly what happens. It really does matter. This is an interesting quote from someone who used to be a Seventh-day Adventist. He said, as I began to visit other churches and attend Christian concerts, I was blessed tremendously by contemporary music and praise and worship music. Now, is there something wrong with something being written today? No. Nobody has an axe to grind about something that's written today. That's, that's contemporary. Quite often, though, it's just a euphemism for, for rock in a new dress. That's all it is. I tried to bring worship renewal into the church I pastored by changing the music. That's not how revival and reformation comes. You read the book, The Great Controversy. You read many of the revivals that happened in the Old Testament. They never came this way. It was prayer and the Word. That's what did it. This is artificial. Most just sat back and criticized. Now, this statement I found interesting. I still had not realized that their theology left them incapable of celebrating. Now, notice how he links the word celebration with atonement and, and, uh, and salvation. Celebration can only happen when a person is secure in Christ's finished work. And by that he meant the cross, and that's it. There is no investigative judgment. There is no 1844. It's done. It's gone. <coughs> That's why he was clashing with the congregation who thought, wait a minute, there's something that's not right about this. They were intuitively doing the math. They might not have been able to express it, but they were intuitively doing it and saying, there's something that is not right about this. And he picked it up. He said, yeah, it was their theology. That's what prevented them from doing it. So you first got to chuck our theology and our plan of salvation before you can introduce this in, in, in a lot of Seventh-day Adventist churches. But there's some people that are going to fight you tooth and nail on that because that's the pillars. You know what Ellen White said? She said, woe to the person that moves one block or one pin from these pillars. 
That was the angel talking to her as well. She says, whoa, but this is what is really happening. Because when we, when we introduce this style of worship, what we're doing is turning our backs on the sanctuary, turning our backs on what Jesus is doing. I'm not saying that people are purposely doing it, but this is what the Bible is bringing out. They don't have the intention to do that. We, I believe everyone wants people to be saved, all of our young people. But this is what the Bible is bringing out. Oh, okay, Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, just before we get to Revelation 5. Um, Numbers chapter 25. This is a very important incident. If you read um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that um, we should be careful, those of us that are living in the last days. And he mentions three or four historical incidents that we need to be careful of. One of them we just covered, which was the golden calf. This is another one at Baal Peor. So in Numbers chapter 25, it says, now they're on the banks of the Jordan. They're almost ready to cross over. It says, and Israel abode in Shittim. And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What are the implications? So the Apostle Paul said, look, you need to be careful about what happened back then. Because just as God's people were led to the, to the physical Jordan back then, he's leading a whole people to the spiritual Jordan. And if the devil redoubled his efforts just as they were about to, to, to go into the promised land, he's going to use the same tactics. There was a strange infatuation with the daughters of Moab. The daughters of Moab, you, you see, what did Balaam try to do first? He tried to first curse the Israelites, right? But it wouldn't work because uh, they were faithful to him. And every curse turned into a blessing. But he wanted that, that, that prestige and that money so badly, he was willing to sell his soul for it. And so he hooked up with the Moabites and he said, I've got just the plan to make the Israelites fall. He concocted the whole thing. And so these beautiful Moabite women stole into the Israelite camp under a professed uh, friendship. Nobody really thought anything of it. And today, you know, we want to we wanna look at all these other women in the book of Revelation. We got a strange infatuation with some of them. Oh, how do they do church? Oh, let's go and copy them. You know, let's go download their worship service. Have you ever downloaded anything from the Internet and gotten a virus? <laughs> what good is it to talk about the program when the virus has eaten out the program in your whole hard drive? And we think, okay, if we download the worship service, it's not going to affect our theology. You know? And so we go around, what makes this church successful? You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 12 or 20, I don't remember what it was. I should have done the research before I got here. God says, you know, don't go out and inquire after their gods about how they worshipped. Deuteronomy chapter 12. He says, don't do that. But that's what we're doing, you know? And we've come to the point theologically where we don't see the consequences. So just like they had a strange infatuation with the daughters of Moab, some within our ranks have a strange infatuation with the daughters of Babylon. You know, we look at some of their churches. There's a church in Lansing, Michigan. And they have all these flags to indicate that they're international. You know, and it bothers me a little bit that Seventh-day Adventists would be intimidated by that. Oh, uh, that church isn't international. They're not in every country. Do you realize what kind of structures we could build if we kept the tithe? 
how, I mean, we'd, we'd make the Crystal Cathedral look like a shack. <laughs> but that's not what we're about. We're about preaching the gospel. And so, I, we're, we have a strange infatuation. I can just imagine what the conversation might have been like. Because you know the Moabites and the Israelites are related. You know, if you go back far enough. They might have said, okay, let me get this straight, you Israelites. Now, we're related, you know, we got a lot of things in common. Now, you, you got sacrifices, right? And we got sacrifices. Well, hey, now you got this strange idea called the Day of Atonement. But, you know, we shouldn't let that get in the way. Just, you know, we can, we can discard that. And we can all unite around the sacrifice. We're all Christian brothers and sisters. <laughs> and that's essentially what the devil is doing today. Uh, he's saying, hey, don't we all believe in Jesus? Aren't we all, you know, anybody who confesses the name of Jesus? But it's a Jesus that's been gutted out of meaning, you know, like the, like the taxidermy thing I shared. It's just, it's not a real moose up there. It's, it's you know, the moose has no meaning. <laughs> and that's exactly what has happened with the name of Jesus. No, our, all sacrifices are not the same. Uh, the altar was not to go outside of the sanctuary, and there was a reason for that. And I, I think the reasons are biblical and theological. In addition to that, if you uh, turn with me to Psalm chapter uh, 106, verse 28, this is the divine commentary by the psalmist on that incident at Baal Peor. Psalm 106, verse 28. Psalm 106, verse 28 says, They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. That means they ate the sacrifices that were offered to the dead. This is a spiritualistic worship service. Think about it today. I mean, who believes that the dead are asleep? Well, I don't, I don't know of any, too many other people other than ourselves. This immortality of the soul thing is at the basis of a lot of false theology and a lot of false worship. So it was an ecumenical worship service. That means everybody got there, everybody go along, get along. And it was a spiritualistic worship service. Look at this statement. It says that Balaam's suggestion, a grand festival in honor of their gods, was appointed by the king of Moab. They ventured upon the forbidden ground and were entangled in the snare of Satan, beguiled with music. Do you know that music has a beguiling, bewitching power? And people that are not aware usually have their brains turned off when they're listening to certain, you know, they're, they're not aware that they're being manipulated. They're not aware that they're being beguiled. But that's exactly what can happen. Beguiled with music and dancing and allured by the beauty of heathen vestals, they cast off their fealty to Jehovah. I uh, had the privilege of going on the Great Controversy Tour this summer. And, you know, some people think that the Roman Catholic worship service is a dry, boring, dull ceremonial. Now, if you live in some little, little church, perhaps that may be. But if you visit some of these big cathedrals, it, it cannot fail to impress you. Read in the chapter of the Great Controversy, Liberty of Conscience Threatened, about Roman Catholic worship. It is an awesome display, okay? There's no question about that. What did it say here? It says, they were allured by what? The beauty of heathen vestals. And many of us are beguiled by the experience of worship, and we haven't really thought the thing through. 
So they, they, they were called to the sacrifices of their gods. Not Israelite gods, but Moabite gods. Sacrifices implies a plan of salvation. They bowed down to their gods, a form of worship. Music was involved. The final result, uh, Israel divorced God and married Baal Peor. You know, have you heard preachers say when they, when they marry someone, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder? Well, they divorced God and married Baal. That's what happened. You know, the rest of the, uh, the, the, rest of the um, religious world understands this relationship between philosophy and uh, worship forms. For instance, in the Hindu religion, Ravi Shankar, he says, We are taught that one of the fundamental goals the Hindu works toward in his lifetime is the knowledge of the true meaning of the universe, its unchanging eternal essence. All right? And this is realized first by a complete knowledge of oneself and one's own nature. Well, we would disagree with that. You know, we would say, no, that's a methodological error. We cannot find out ultimate truth by looking to us and to the creation. No, it's by divine revelation. That isn't the point. Anyhow, the highest aim of our music is to reveal the essence of the universe it reflects. Did you catch that? The highest aim of our music is to reveal the essence of the universe it reflects. And the ragas, those are Indian scales, are among the means by which this essence can be apprehended. Thus, through music, one can reach God. So if you wanted to really improvise and play uh, Hindu music, what would you have to study first, the music or the philosophy? You'd have to study the philosophy. Because your own native genius and creativity couldn't be trusted unless it was philosophically grounded. When it's philosophically grounded, then you can express that. Same thing with uh, Islam. The Muslim artists sought to express the non-representableness, the inexpressibility of the divine. Now, that is true about God, right? There is a part of his nature that is totally incomprehensible. Amen? There is no searching of his understanding. I mean, he, he defies all that. But that's not the complete picture. It says... The Word was made what? <laughs> Flesh and dwelt among us. So, the Muslim artist sought to express the non-representableness, the inexpressibility of the divine. And in this pursuit, listen to what it says, he created structures in the visual arts and music and literature to suggest infinity. So again, you must start with philosophy and then you create the structures which express that. All uh, all art follows philosophy. Well, what about rock music? Have you ever heard the fact that we're living in the postmodern world? In the modern world, people believed that there was such a thing as absolute truth. But the path to absolute truth is with uh, reason and, 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 and science. Well, as, as, as biblical Christians, we would disagree with that aspect of it. There is such a thing as absolute truth. Whether you and I believe it or not, it exists. The path to it is not reason and logic and science. All right? But now we live in the postmodern world where there is no such thing as absolute truth, where God is not defined from above or out there. Okay? There are as many truths as peoples and cultures. There's no such thing as an all-encompassing truth that's universally valid for everyone. Now, think about this for a minute. If there's no such thing as absolute truth, what would our worship service be like? Is there anything as such thing as false worship? No, that's simply how you see it. In the end, we're, uh, when all is said and done, we're at the time of the judges. You know what the last verse in the book of Judges says? Every man did that which was right 
in his own eyes. So if that's our philosophy, this is our foundation. <laughs> so, and if this is our philosophy, uh, this is our foundation here too. Film may have made postmodern popular culture possible, and television may have disseminated that culture, but rock music is probably the most representative form of postmodern culture. Rock music embodies a central hallmark of postmodernity, its dual focus on the global and the local and the offerings of the big stars and the small town bands alike. Rock reflects a plurality of styles borrowed from local and ethnic musical forms. Listen to this one. Uh, Stanley Grant's uh, is a, uh, as a theologian. Um, and uh, wholeheartedly, I think, uh, is with this. The pop culture of our day reflects the centerless pluralism of postmodernity and gives expression to the anti-rationalism of postmodernism. Now notice this. As evidence in the clothes they wear and the music they listen to, postmoderns are no longer convinced that their world has what? There is no center. There is no one thing that unites everything else. There is no heavenly sanctuary. The word of God has basically been gutted of its meaning. We're done. <laughs> we are, you, know what, you know where we're at. It's back to the jungle and might makes right. That's basically where we're at. Or whoever's got the almighty dollar, they win. And that's how we make decisions. Uh, rock music is the ideal ecumenical weapon. It draws together people who have uh, contradictory views about God. It's rhythmically related to rhythms found in the world, and its influence is universal. It's got a language all its own. Rock music and pantheism. This is interesting. Some rock, like the songs of Soft Cell, is overtly Christian. Other rock, like Feeder's uh, Jesus Entering from the Rear, is blasphemous. And still other rock, like the music of the police, is arguably Christian and atheistic all at once. How can something be Christian and atheistic all at once? Does that make any sense? That doesn't make any sense to me. There's Vedic rock, Zen rock, Rastafarian rock, born-again rock, never-born rock, even Jewish rock. Rock's pantheism happily accommodates the, the varieties of religious experience, careless of whatever contradiction arises. It will communicate it all. Every belief system can be communicated through rock. And we just can't put Christian words to that. Rock's relatives. Well, you can hear soul and Latin music almost anywhere in Africa. You can hear African and West Indian music on the radio in various times in most large cities in the United States. You can sit in a bar in Ghana, Togo, or the Ivory Coast and hear music from Zaire, the Congo, from Nigeria, from South Africa, from Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Colombia, and the United States. Great drummers aficionados and scholars can trace the rhythms of Latin dance halls of, of New York to Cuban and Brazilian cults and then to West Africa. John Miller Chernoff spent 10 years studying that. These are things that most people, most people know. Uh, and I don't need to tell you the worldwide influence of rock, uh, but it's, it's absolutely everywhere. This is interesting. Today, musicians and listeners the world over are plugged into the internet uh, plugged into one another via the internet, TV and ubiquitous recordings. The result is a vast electronic bazaar uh, through which South African Cueto music can make pulses pound in Sweden or, or Brazilian post-mambo can set feet dancing in Tokyo. Cultures are borrowing the sounds of other cultures, creating vibrant uh, hybrids that are then instantly disseminated around the globe to begin the blending process all over again. Musically, to an unprecedented degree, the United States is part of the world, and the world is part of our experience. What contribution has the United States made? <laughs> oh, yes, this is where it all began. 
This is where the backbeat, uh, the, the rhythm and blues, uh, the jazz began. This is the contribution that the United States makes. Uh, no question about it. Um, lyrics are important, but they don't have to matter. Even when Bob Dylan, arguably, arguably America's finest lyricist, mumbles through a number, the poetry of his words comes out in the phrasing, how does it feel? Dylan famously asked on Like a Rolling Stone. We may not have known exactly what he meant, but we knew how it felt. I like, I like this one. Uh, Tom York of the British band Radiohead wrote some songs for his album Kid A by cutting up lyric sheets and pulling lines out of a top hat. Does that sound like a Shakespearean sonnet to you? Man, fellas, we really got to craft these words right. We really got to take our time and think about this because that is the message that we are going to convey to the people who listen to our music. Yeah, right. I've listened to thousands of hours of rock music. Nobody listens to it because of the words. I'll just be bold and make that statement. Nobody does. Now, I've got the words all memorized. If you listen to something a thousand times, you're going to memorize something, aren't you? Okay, let me go to the part where I really want to get to right here before we... Oh, I must have downloaded the wrong one. Okay. Don't worry, you got, you got nine-tenths of it. <laughs> you, got, you got nine-tenths of it. Okay, what do I got up here? Aha, uh -huh. helps if I read the directions. I'm going to go to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 right now. And I want you to think about what we talked about at the Golden Calf. And... Uh, and then we're going to contrast this as we close with Revelation chapters 4 and 5. So if you have your Bibles there, go to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This is a heavenly sanctuary setting. There's no doubt about that. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 says this. It says, And after this I looked, and beheld a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee these things which must be hereafter. So there's an open door in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Did you know that there's a door that was closed and that was open in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 8? The experience of the Philadelphian church says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Ellen White connects these, three, these two texts which re with Revelation eleven nineteen. It says... And the temple of God was opened in heaven. There we talked about an open door. But now it says the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. There were lightnings, voices, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. Back to Revelation chapter 4 verse 2. It says, Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. This is taking place obviously in heaven. Uh, in the great temple that is there. And we read this text in Psalm chapter 11, verse, verse 4. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. That's where we were directed. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, you have the four living creatures. And uh, 
That, ref that can take us back to Isaiah, and it can also take us back to some other biblical backgrounds in, um, uh, in the book of the Chronicles, where in Solomon's temple you had not just two cherubim, but you had four around the most holy place. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, you have the lamps that appear uh, in these texts even before the most holy place. Interesting. Now, I may be introducing something new to some of you here, and I just want you to just give it some consideration. This is not something that I made up. Uh, there's a little bit of a divergence of opinion on this, and I'm going to explain why I think it's relevant, uh, the position that I and others have chosen. Is this a holy place setting or a most holy place setting? I want to give you several reasons for why I believe that it's a most holy place setting. The parallels between Revelation 4 and 5 found in Daniel, Ezekiel 1 to 10, and Isaiah 6 all speak of a judgment. There's a relationship between Revelation 5 and the Day of Atonement setting. There was only one being in the entire universe in Revelation 5 that, was, that, had, that had the authority to take the sealed book and to open it. Only one. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could go into the most holy place of the sanctuary and have access to that book. Another reason. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 8 and 10, Jeremiah is about to buy a field. Now, he's about to buy the field when another country is going to be taking over his country. Now, what person would do that? I mean, you know, it's, I want to buy this property. Yeah, but the Babylonian is going to come and take it. It's not going to be worth anything. Well, he did it as a statement of faith that God's people would ultimately be relocated back in the land. But... There was two copies of the book in the transaction. There was a sealed copy and there was an open copy. The, uh, the sealed copy, of course, was not tampered with. The open copy was there. In case there was any dispute, someone could say, okay, well, what part of the land did you get? Okay, well, here it is right here. But how do I know it hasn't been tampered with? Well, if you, if you suspect that the open copy is, has been tampered with, where do you go next? You go to the sealed copy. And if it still has its seals, you break the seals open, and then it verifies the open copy. And so there's a relationship there as well. Jesus is then opening this sealed book, verifying the experience of God's people. Revelation 4.1, as we read, 3 verse 7 and 8, and 11.19 are all linked together by Ellen White as talking about this most holy place scene. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. Revelation chapter 4 verse 4. It says in Revelation 4, verse 4, it says, And around about the throne were 24 seats. So around the throne were 24 seats. Verse 6, And before the throne was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Chapter 5, verse 6, and I beheld in lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels around about the throne. Now, that word around suggests to me that something was in the center. If this is indeed the heavenly sanctuary, what article of furniture was placed in the center? You don't find that in the holy place. You only find it 
in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how should we interpret some of these symbols? You have the seven spirits. Should it be holy or most holy? Well, the seven spirits are not restricted to the sending out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It can also be applied to the, to, to the latter rain in Revelation chapter 18 as well. Again, the size of the system that you have must accommodate all the data. Is it really true that the lamb and the, and the imagery of the lamb must be restricted to what happened in AD 31? No, because if you read Leviticus 16, blood and the lamb were also required on the Day of Atonement. Okay? So, um, why is this significant? If this is a, holy, a most holy place con uh, setting, notice the historical context. In 1844, Darwin had written The Origin of the Species. That would knock out God as being the transcendent one. It would now confuse God with the creation. Now you have imminence instead of transcendence. God is not transcendent, but He's confused with the creation. Genesis 1-11 to is not historical. You have theistic evolution. The Sabbath has no relevance whatsoever. That's why there's a call to worship in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. God is holy. He is separate and distinct. That's what it means to be holy. He's not to be confused with the creation. He is worthy of worship because He is the Creator. Darwinism also destroys any, uh, 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 um, uh, any system of ethics. Because if I came out of an amoeba or out of, out of some, some earlier primate, why are you bothering me for acting like one? So there's a call to ethical holiness. It says, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holiness is mentioned nine times in Leviticus 16. There, is, uh, there are flashes of lightning. That's a solemn experience. The instruments are associated with the Hebrew temple service. You have the trumpet. You have the harp. You have the new song. You have incense. They are falling down and worshiping. They are saying, Amen. They're clothed in white. They have golden crowns. The elders are prostrating themselves. God is defined within the context of the sanctuary and the great controversy theme. It's a day of atonement setting. Jesus is about to be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Worship must lead us to Christ's work in heaven. The harp is the only accompanying instrument. The pattern for worship comes from the sanctuary. There is the proper blend of reverence and praise in that setting. All right? So those are the two different worship services. One, orderly, respectful, reverent. The amens are loud. They do it with a loud voice. We're not, we're not talking about a dead worship service. There's the proper blend of reverence and praise. It's built upon the sanctuary as the philosophical structure. But the golden calf is entirely different. Built on a different system. Built on a different, different structure. Alright? Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again we ask that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Teach us, Lord, guide us, so that we might render you an offering that would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.